This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we're interviewing Lisa Bate. She's a wildlife biologist at Glacier National Park in northern Montana. She specializes in birds and bats, overseeing multiple research, inventory, and monitoring programs, including harlequin ducks, songbirds, raptors, black swifts, Clark's nutcrackers, and bats. Lisa Bate also oversees wildlife and compliance monitoring for projects like the reconstruction of the Going to the Sun and many glacier roads, focused on preventing detrimental effects to grizzly bears. Prior to her employment at Glacier, Lisa worked as a private research wildlife biologist, focusing mainly on birds, cavity nesting species, and their habitat. So we're going to talk today about bats. So Lisa, welcome. We're interested in hearing about the bats in Glacier today. Okay, thank you, Jay. Yeah. So when I first came to the park, um, we really didn't know much about bats here in Glacier National Park because no formal bat studies had ever been conducted. Uh. But um, on the horizon was this disease called white nose syndrome that had been discovered in a cave in New York in 2006, and it began to rapidly spread, and the main thing it did was kill bats when they were hibernating. Bats, not all bats species hibernate, but a lot of our smaller bats do, like the little brown bat, a lot of our myotas do. And when they, um, some cavers went into this cave and found these bats that looked like they were frozen hanging from the ceiling, and they had this white powdery fungus mm. all over their nose and their wings. Mm-hmm. And that's why this disease is called white nose syndrome. Um, and it, we, it's caused by a cold-loving fungus. We call it PD. The scientific name is Pseudogymnoascus destructans. Mm-hmm. And we believe, well, we know that it was brought over from Europe. And we think maybe like some cavers over there didn't realize that there was this fungus there and they brought it here to the States and introduced it maybe on their gear or their clothing. Um, bats in Europe have built immunity against this disease and can live oh. with it. Mm-hmm. But here in North America, that's not the case. And we have no idea really how many bats we've lost, but we know it's over 6 million bats oh that have died from this disease. And you can go online to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and look up White Nose Syndrome. And they have this interactive map that shows the spread of the disease. You know, one little red dot representing a cave in New York, and then the next year it spread a little further. Mm. And every time I give a talk about bats and white nose syndrome, I have to put a new map in my talk because it has spread so much. Mm. But I think, um, I'm not great at remembering numbers, but the last I remember... I think like 37 states and, or maybe it's more than that, 39 states and seven Canadian provinces um, have PD, 
the fungus and or white nose syndrome. So uh, does it affect all species of bats or uh, is it selective? It tends to be selective, mainly the myotis species, so like your little brown bat, your northern long-eared bat. Um, it, other bats can carry it, but that means that we can um, find the fungus on them, but mm. it doesn't invade their tissues and kill mm. them. The way this fungus kills bats is that it invades their um, tissues and upset, upsets their homeostasis, you know, their water and electrolyte uh, balance. Yeah. That makes the bat aroused from hibernation, and essentially they starve to death because they are waking up too much. They should stay in torpor right. most of the winter. And if they don't, they don't have enough fat reserves to get them through. And uh, that's why it's been such a deadly disease. So uh, how long does a bat survive uh, once contracted with a disease? Uh, that varies also. Um, the, there is a little glimmer of hope here. If a bat contracts the disease late in the hibernation process, um, and they can get out into the sunlight, like say March and April mm -hmm. at our latitude, um, the fungus is killed by UV, ultraviolet light. Oh, really? Um, and, you know, some bats succumb right away, some don't. A lot depends on their fat resources going into hibernation. Um, some of our bats don't hibernate. They migrate, like our larger bats, hoary mm -hmm. bats, mm -hmm. red bat. Um, the Mexican free-tailed bat, which is um, maybe you've heard of Congress Bridge down in Texas, those bats don't hibernate at all. They just migrate, and that bridge has, I think, 3 million bats. And so they're not susceptible to the white-nose syndrome. It's the bats that hibernate in cold, damp caves that succumb to this disease. Uh, is there any way that humans can intervene to uh, combat the, the fungus? Yeah, so what we do, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a real strict disinfection protocol. So when, when um, at, there are times that we don't even handle bats um, just because we're concerned about spreading the disease, we do do it if there's a good reason. Like right now, um, the beginning of June, I'll be traveling over to the east side of the park to St. Mary mm -hmm. where we have um, several roost uh, places that the bats will sleep or raise their pups or uh, rest during the day until they come out at night. And um, we will capture those bats and swab their noses and forearms and then send that into the National Wildlife Health Center to test for the presence of PD or white nose syndrome. Yeah. So Anytime we switch sites, we completely disinfect all of our gear, all of our clothes, we have, um, you have to get a permit to go into a cave here in Montana. And anytime you're switching between caves, you have to go through a really strict disinfection protocol. Well, once a bat has, uh, has been uh, relieved of the fungus, or I guess I should say cured, uh, can it contract it again? You know, I'm not certain about that. Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that. Okay. Um, I would think some natural immunity would develop, but I just really haven't heard about that or not. How many bat species are found in Glacier Park? 
Well, that's what's exciting, because when we started this, we only knew of six, and um, four we had confirmed in hand, two just acoustically, and one of the bats, the big brown bat, the only confirmation we had was because it was roadkill. Um, so we really didn't know, and since we've been doing these bat surveys starting in 2011, we have now added four new species to our uh, mammals mm. list. Mm -hmm. So we are up to 10 bat species in the park now. What's the largest bat species in the park? It's called a hoary bat. Um, they, you know what hoarfrost is, that silvery color? Uh-huh. And they have a 16-inch wingspan, and they are just gorgeous. Wow. Um, they're high flyers. They're soft as a rabbit. Their fur is just so soft. And they're sort of a reddish gray grizzled color and just have this beautiful face. And I think the most endearing thing about them is the noises they make. They hiss and click when they're scared. They go, mm. Shh. Mm. And it's quite loud. I'm not good at imitating sounds. But, um, <laughs> they're, they are just so gorgeous. And then we have the eastern red bat, the silver heron, and big brown bat that are some of our larger bats. And then we have the little brown myotas, the long-eared myotas, long-legged myotas, Yuma myotas, California myotas, which is our smallest bat, and now the western small-footed. And I think, did I name ten? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Six yeah. plus four. Right. So what's their favor? What's the habitat that bats favor? Uh, does it differ by species? Yeah, uh, just like birds, every bat has its own little niche. Little brown bats, they love to roost in um, human structures. They probably have evolved with humans. And they love to, they're the ones that if you have bats in your attic or something, they're most of the time the little brown bat. They love, uh, they can be found anywhere here in the park, but they love to forage over calm water. Mm -hmm. They it can't be um, fast-moving water because that interferes with their echolocation. Um, moving water creates ultrasonic sounds, and the bats use ultrasonic sounds and echolocation. They emit a, uh, a sound, and then it'll come back to their ears, and it's pretty much like radar, and because of that, they can tell where that insect is in space mm -hmm. and time and go get it. Um, hoary bats, they... <clears throat> um, they tend to be high-flying bats, and they feed more on beetles, the larger beetles. Some of our bats prefer moths, and then some of the, like, little browns, those are the ones you got to think, because they love to eat our mosquitoes and things like that. Um, the long-eared bat, um, they tend to be more in our old-growth forest. Um, and, you know, a lot of them, it, it just sort of depends. It's... It, that's something we're trying to learn, like what habitats these bats um, like. Not all of our bats that we have on the west side or on the east side and vice versa. So I feel like we're still learning. It's it's difficult. It's not like birds. You can't go out and hear them. You can't go out and see them. Mm, yeah. So it's either putting nets up and catching them and seeing what you have or putting these um, acoustic detectors out. But that's not a perfect science either, and we're always always trying to struggle and figure out what bats we have based on their acoustic calls. I think of bats as, uh, in the daytime, uh, in their in caves, and at nighttime flying out and 
uh, catching insects. So where do they spend their daytime uh, hours in caves, or are there other locations that they uh, inhabit? Yeah, not so much in caves here. The only time we have some caves here in the park, and the only time we've been picking them up in our caves is late summer, early fall, when mm -hmm. it's their mating season. They tend to go to these caves for swarming. We're n we have not confirmed any caves as hibernacula. We, th we know we have bats that hibernate here, but we think it's in all the deep cracks and fissures in the mountains. But a lot of the bats, like little browns, love buildings, but they also love um, cavities and a snag, you know, a standing dead tree. Um, some it will roost in the um, out rock outcroppings. The males like it a little cooler. We might find them at higher elevations. The females, when they're having their pups, they like it hot. And that's why we see them in a lot of our buildings. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the human body, its optimal ambient temperature for us to exercise is like 70 degrees. Right. Bats, they like it between 90 and all the way up to 105. Really? Uh -huh. Yeah, they really like it hotter, and that helps them, you know, um, with the, pat, the um, pups developing, they don't have to go into torpor to save calories and things like that. If not affected by white-nose syndrome, uh, what is their longevity? Does it differ among species? Yeah, I think it does, and I think that's just something we don't really know because it's, so, it's been so hard to put uh, bands or tags right, on right. that. But in captivity, a little brown bat, they're long-lived, but again, very low reproductive rate because they raise one pup a year, most of them. But we had one bat here, um, Corey Lawson, the Canadian biologist who trained me on bat handling and all kinds of things. We caught one female bat um, that literally had little nubs for teeth, and she thought that bat could be as old as 40 years old. Wow. I think in captivity, the oldest bat was 42, but definitely long-lived species, but low reproductive rate. And are insects uh, the only uh, food for uh, sustaining these bats? In our area, yes. Um, all of the bats that we have here um, in Glacier are insectivores, meaning they feed on insects. Right. Um, but worldwide, this is what's so fascinating about bats. If you go to um, a website like Bat Conservation International, it talks about all the different types of bats in the world. And bats are so numerous, they make up 25% of the biomass of all mammals on Earth and 25% of all the diversity of mammals. Mm. And we have, you know, bats that are, have a six-foot wingspan. They're called the flying foxes that eat on, um, feed on fruit. And the good thing about that is the fruit, Seeds pass through their digestive system, and then when they um, when they poop, all of that um, seed can germinate into a new fruit tree. Um, some of them drink uh, nectar. Um, yeah, so we have different bats um, that feed on different things throughout the world, but here in the northern latitudes, it's insects. Do they have some natural predators? Oh, do they ever. <laughs> and that's why, you know, if we lose our bats, we really expect to see a, a ripple response through our ecosystems because 
if you ever go to a bat roost, like at a bridge where there are lots of bats coming out, right. what you're going to see as it gets dark, you're going to see red-tailed hawks and great horned owls or other hawks sitting there. And as the bats emerge and fly past, you're going to see those hawks and eagles go grab them and feed on them. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Small mammals, you know, like weasels, things like that, will, if they can access a roost, they'll go up and feed on them too. Um, yeah. So, uh, are uh, are bats a threat to other animals, or they do they predate on other animals, or endanger them? Insects. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people are afraid of bats. Right. There's this old saying that you kill what you fear, and you fear what you don't understand. Huh. So that's a big part of our bat inventory monitoring program is to educate people about bats. Um, you know, I hear people say, oh, it flew right by my head. But you know why that's probably happening is that mosquitoes are drawn to humans because we exhale carbon dioxide. That brings in the mosquitoes, and then the bats are coming in close to get the mosquitoes. But, you know, the stories about bats and people terror of that sort of like a wild wives' tale or whatever. Um, and, you know, occasionally a bat can have rabies, so if you do find a bat on the ground, I recommend putting leather gloves on and taking it outside to your nearest leaning tree. Get it up high and put it in the shade if it's really hot. And if it's really cold, you want to put it where maybe it can get some sunlight. But um, they're not a threat to other species um, when they're healthy. Do are are bats only found at, at certain elevations in Glacier? Do they do they how high do they might do they move? That's a great question. That's part of our new study. We have oh, a, uh -huh. funded from the Conservancy again. Uh, it's called Into the Alpine. Um, very little is known about bats at higher elevations. So. We've been using acoustic detectors and putting them up like between seven and eight thousand feet, and I've been just shocked at how many bat species we're seeing and the abundance of calls that we're getting. That's one of the challenges with using acoustic detectors, though. You never know when you put a bat detector out. Do you have fifty bats going by once, or do you have one bat going by fifty times? So, yeah. It's really a struggle, so what we're trying to do is get up into the alpine areas with um, our trapping gear to really try to um, confirm what we have up there. And Last year we started, and it was pretty much a bust because the week we have to plan these trips really far in advance because we have to get stock support to carry all of our gear in for us because uh -huh. it's a lot. Um, but the week that we pick, you know, we are hiking and backpacking with these electrical conduit poles, and we had lightning five out of six nights. And oh, you wow. cannot leave metal poles up in the sky when there's lightning going on. Yeah. So, but um, we're working on it. We're just beginning that part. But it looks like, yeah, um, some of the research done in Yellowstone found that the bats were roosting in the talus slopes, you know, those big piles of big rocks. Right. So we're starting to target areas like that too. Uh, was uh, oh, uh, is the melting black of the glaciers uh, affecting uh, where bats are found? 
Uh, what was that question again? With, with the melting of glaciers, uh, was the is the incidence of finding bats changing? Are they moving? You know, I don't. I don't think we know because we've only really been studying bats in the park since 2011. Oh. That's not enough time. But you know, if I had to hypothesize, um, what I would say is that you know, as things get hotter, we see streams dry up, and usually it's the streams that allow uh, more insects out there. Um, and also, as um, things warm up, um, we, we can have increased um, forest insect pests and diseases attacking our trees. And if we don't have the bats to eat pests at night, just like the birds do during the day, a lot of these trees could become more vulnerable and die, and that can increase the probability of wildfire on our landscape. So we want to try to keep both bats and birds out there to help balance things out. You mentioned some different studies that are being done. Uh, is there any other research that... Uh uh, you're engaged in or anyone else is engaged in in the park with respect to bats? Um, one thing we do is um, we do emergence counts. And that's, did I mention that yet? I don't think so. Bat emergence counts. So where we know we have a known bat roost, we will four or five times each summer stand out there just as it's getting dark with just a traffic counter and click and count how many bats come out of that roost. That is an absolute number. Then we take that high count for the year and we are tracking the trend, like are the numbers stable? And then once white nose shows up, which it inevitably will, it's not a matter of if, it's just right. when, right. we will repeat those emergence counts at those select roosts. And um, that'll be one of our best tools to assess the impacts of white-nose syndrome. And that's super important research. It's not the most glamorous thing to do, count bats out there with your little traffic counter. Right. But it is some of the most solid data we have. Mm -hmm. So uh, bats uh, go after insects, but insects vary in their, in, in their in the frequency of when they show up. So as as the summer wanes, uh, you're running out of insects, aren't you? Yeah, that's a really good observation. One thing that really affects bats and birds um, is, like, if we have a really bad wildfire year, um, the smoke interferes with bats' ability to echolocate mm. the insect. You know, it's so hot and dry, we don't have that many insects. Um, just... Last fall, we had just this massive die-off of songbirds migrating south, and they pretty much attributed it to a lot of these birds just starved to death because it was hot and dry up here with fires, and then they're migrating south, and they got hit with a cold snap, and it just sunk a bunch of them. So many of them died. And, you know, we just, again, we it's almost, it's so hard to put a transmitter on a bat because they weigh so little. Right. And the transmitters just aren't small enough. If you, I have helped with some research outside the park using transmitters, but they literally will only stay on 10 or 21 days. You glue it to the back of the bat, and um, 
you have to have a supersonic receiver to figure out where they are. And a lot of them just disappear because they go so far away. Um, bats can, you know, during a single day, between day and night, they can travel, you know, sometimes 40 miles between where they roost and where they forage. Mm-hmm. Are any bat species on the, on the threatened or endangered species list? Not here in the park, but yeah, quite a few throughout the world and, you know, back east. Um, right now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has volunteer, uh, volunteered to just assess the status of the little brown bat, which I think mm-hmm. is our most common bat here in the park, mm-hmm. um, to see if it warrants being listed as threatened. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but, um, you know, the, as the disease moves further west or just keeps spreading it leapfrog to the state of Washington. But um, right now, white-nose syndrome is only two counties away from Glacier. Mm. Um, last year, it was found in a cave in central Montana, and it used to be our largest known hibernaculum of little brown bats mm. in the state. And it killed 98% of those bats. Oh, my gosh. I know. So I'm just, like, holding my breath, waiting for it, and... We'll just continue doing what we do, and um, we work with facilities management here in the park. So if bats are roosting in the bo- in the buildings and they have construction projects they need to do, we'll develop mitigation plans. Either say, okay, you can do it the month of April or May, but once June mm. hits, you have to wait until the bats leave. Yeah. Um, so. That's part of my work, too, to come up with those mitigation plans. What kind of events or programs uh, do you offer to visitors to learn about uh, bats in Glacier? Oh, that's funny that you ask. Um, We just started back up with our Going Batty field trip. And let's see, i got to look up the date. Um, That is a night that we set up nets nearby here to West Glacier on the Corner Circle Bridge Road. And we invite 25 people from the public, and people have to sign up for it. And then um, we catch the bats, and we process them in front of people. And then we show them how um, we record their calls and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we call it our going batty field trip. But (laughs) we find that that's a great educational opportunity. So... We will do that once a year. During COVID, we had to shut it down, but we are going to be starting that again. Um, and we have our going batty field trip planned for the night of July 13th. Uh-huh. If people are interested, they should look on Glacier's Facebook or website. That's where it'll, the sign-up sheets will be available. Good time to look forward to going to Glacier's middle yeah, of July. Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa, we've once again uh, exhausted our time, so I really appreciate your telling us all about bats today. This has been fascinating, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Jay, and thanks for making people aware and interested in wildlife. Our guest today has been Lisa Bade, wildlife biologist at Glacier National Park. She's a specialist in birds and bats and has been talking to us today all about bats up in the park. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.